to episode 261 of The Sleeper in the Bus. It is your Thursday edition, and I am Paul Spohr, joined as always on Thursdays by Eno Saris. Eno, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing really good, actually. Uh, my my child allowed me to sleep until 3 a.m. last night, which uh, it's fantastic. is the victory these days. That's good. That's good to hear. Um, my fur child, uh, that's <laughs> the best I could say, it's a, it's a puppy. Uh, Wait. Yes? That means that you're, it's, it's like a baby, isn't it? It I mean, is you kind of like get up in the middle of the night, don't you? Uh, yeah, I was just about to say, it, it, it it's not the same. I would never do that, say that the puppy is the same as a human. I know that it's different, and I watch my sister <laughs> deal with my niece, you know, and I was there a couple of the nights when, when they first got her, and, uh, you know, it was crazy to be waking up at that time, and, and dealing with a baby is a lot different than dealing with a puppy, but yeah, you know, she's ready to be up. At like 2.15 for a little bit and, and go pee everywhere. And we're like, we, we keep her in the bed, so we don't want her to pee in the bed. So, yeah, I, I do have to get up. Um, it was different and a little bit worse with Curtis because I was pretty new to it. So I had him in his crate. I, I, I didn't let him in the bed for a while. Um, so he would just start crying. So I had no choice but to wake. <laughs> he would literally be like a baby. He would just start whimpering at 3 in the morning, scratching to get out. Um, we've avoided that because we're not putting her in the crate because we think she would do it just from the jump. Uh, and what, what was he again? He was a uh, he was a beagle. Curtis was a the beagle. Beagles are so loud. They yes. they, they, they bay out and they, they yeah. Yes, yeah. and and he he had no problem doing that. She whimpers a little bit, but she's pretty good. Speaking of, made her first piss outside today. Big big Yay. victory in the Spore household. So we're very pleased. Hopefully it, it continues. Um, but yeah, I'm doing well on this Thursday too. We had five day games, couple still going on. We got five games tonight. Not a bad slate for a Thursday. Thursdays are usually lighter. Um, so, so to have the five and five split, I like that. We're going to talk probably some about the guys that have pitched or played today, but I really want to get into some stuff that, uh, we've seen kind of over the course of the week, including a couple of impressive debuts last night. One was a major league debut. One was a, a a new team debut and, and boy, he kind of wishes it was his major league debut because his lasting effect. Uh, in the majors before that debut was was pretty bad. Let's talk Luis Severino first, though. He made his major league debut, and we've talked a bit about him. He's kind of their uh, the Yankees trade move. They didn't do any moves. They refused to trade him. Aaron Judge, Greg Bird, those guys were not happening. So to get any starter, uh, they they just they weren't going to be able to get a high class starter without moving one of those three. And it seems like they look to Luis Severino and say, "Well, you're going to be that guy." Because uh, we're not going to go out and get somebody. We're going to rely on you. And he gets his debut in Yankee Stadium against the, the Red Sox. Five innings, two hits, two runs, only one of them earned. Seven strikeouts and zero walks. An impressive debut. What did you see out of Luis Severino, and what do you think we can uh, expect going forward? You know, he's actually inspired a piece that I'm going to write, write for tomorrow in that um, – there, I think there was a big difference between him in the first and second inning and then him in the third, fourth, and fifth. And, um, you know, all the way along, he had great velocity. And, you know, on his fastball, actually, he stayed uh, 96, 95, 96, you know, into the fifth. So um, I can't complain about that. But uh, and, and even though his command was inconsistent at times, there was this 1-3-2 count to, I think it was Napoli, where he hit – Outside black, uh, outside corner black, on a three-two count with a ninety-five on our fastball Got that you. Napoli fouled off, and then he went right back to the exact same spot with a ninety-mile-an-hour slider on three-two. So um, that was a really, really nice strikeout. Said to me that he was putting the ball where he wanted to put it, and that once he settled down, the command looked a lot better than it did at the very beginning when he was kind of overthrowing. And um, then you also, what's kind of fun is that. You can look, since there's only one start, you can actually just use Brooks to look at uh, how the movement and velocity change on his pitches. And while his fastball stayed constant in 96, his slider and change dipped from uh, both around 90 miles an hour early in the game. Uh, They dipped down to like 86, 87, 88 um, later in the game. And along with that uh, came an added about inch or two of drop on both pitches. Oh, wow. So, you know, literally his slider went from, um, you know, it says here three. It's I, I hate using the actual raw numbers, but, you know, he had three inches of whatever rise, vertical movement on the slider uh, for the first two innings. And the last two innings, the number is uh, 0.6 and 2. So uh, the slider found some bite. 
Um, and a 90 mile an hour slider with those kind of vertical drops, uh, that's the kind of stuff that DeGrom does. Um, I, that's a good compare. I, I like any time someone's being compared favorably to Jacob DeGrom. Well, you know, I mean, the one thing you can say about DeGrom is somebody in my chat asked me to rate his pitches, and I gave his fastball an 8 uh, or an 80, which is a scouting term for you know basically top 10. Mm-hmm. The reason I do that is not only because he's a starter with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, but because he's really good at, at placing it. So um, I think you know that's wrapping you know a command or control grade into a, a pitch grade, but I think no I would you know, and, I, and for Severino, even though he has the velocity, we have questions about how long he'll sustain it, and then also um, what his command, what his true talent command looks like. But anyway, yeah, you know, he, he showed the ability to to have these two pieces, and really, he's known for his change, uh, which got an extra, you know, half inch or so of drop as well. So, um, you know, I, I think that the the change and the slider both look better um, in the, you know, as the game went on. And uh, he had showed flashes of great uh, command, like I was saying. So, you know, in general, uh, one of the most impressive debuts of the year, I think. Yeah, you know, very positive debut. I think if you didn't get to see it, you just look at the numbers and, and you kind of judged off the numbers. You, you have a lucky instance here where where, you, where that's okay because uh, the numbers are going to tell you that it was great and, and it was for Luis Severino. Um, I think there will be more good than bad, uh, you know. I don't know exactly what we're going to get the rest of the way. We've seen these rookies who hit the ground running, they look great, and then they have those one one or two blow-up starts. I think of Eduardo Rodriguez. You know, He's got those three really nasty starts, but then everything else has been great. Not just good, great. He has looked brilliant at times, but then he has those ugly starts that are so devastating. Um, I hope Severino can avoid that that total implosion. He's going to give up some runs every, every now and then here and there. You know, Five innings, four runs, maybe a, a time or two. Let's just hope he doesn't have the one inning seven run kind of massacre but I was really impressed with him I was also pretty impressed although not to the same degree with the Detroit Tigers debut of Matt Boyd and I mentioned that you know he kind of wishes it was his major league debut because his lasting impression before this was a uh, no outs seven seven run run nightmare against Boston he he didn't even log an out six hits one walk a couple of homers boom seven runs and you're done well this time it was uh, seven innings one run seven hits scattered no walk and just two strikeouts, but uh, a solid a solid debut for Boyd. And now both Boyd and Norris have been really sharp in their debuts, while David Price, of course, is dominating too. But uh, nice work by Boyd. Did you get a chance to catch any of it or at least review it after the fact? You didn't. Uh, I was. Uh, I, I, I saw a couple highlights and uh, was on Twitter when it was happening, and, and I was real happy for Kyle Boddy, who um, at Driveline Baseball, we keep talking about him. He... Uh, he held Boyd from a sort of 86, 87 mile an hour soft tossing lefty to uh, at least average velocity for a lefty, which is, uh, and, he, and he actually touched 93, 94 in his debut. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's a real big difference. And, you know, when I look at players that Kyle Body works with, you know, I can start to see, you know, in the pitch FX that. That he's done like what he's done, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I see, I see rise out of four seamers. Like, I know that he's researching these. I know he's reading up on these things. I know that you know he knows that having rise on your four seam helps you get infield fly balls and helps you um, uh, with same-handed hitters. Uh, the rise ball is, is has a platoon split where you can use it against same-handed hitters very well. Um, you know, up in on their hands and stuff. So you see, Matt Boyd has uh, 11 inches of rise. That's two inches more than, than usual on the four seam, so he's probably really trying to spin that ball and get that back uh, that backspin, get get nice rise. So that's that's what I like in that. Uh, the change doesn't actually have what I would consider good numbers, but um, you know he got good looks on it and uh, he got some whiffs on it. So you know sometimes you know things. I mean he's definitely a huge velocity differential. So even if it doesn't have the drop associated with a lot of changeups. To, to run that up there at 80 when he's over 90 uh, with the velocity, that's a real nice velocity differential. And 
just in general, um, you know, from what I it's hard when you look at highlights and you say, well, you got tons of whips, you know. <laughs> they, yeah, they, uh, they, they cut it up really nicely in his favor. When, <laughs> when you go seven innings uh, and just allow one run, it, it gets a nice cut up for you. But no, he, he, he was good. And um, I had to watch this after the fact because I was at softball for most of it. But, uh, you know, he did. He kept him off balance nicely. And that really speaks to that change up. And you mentioned, you know, 12 uh, upwards of 12 miles per hour split differential there when he was averaging 92 with the fastball for Boyd and then down to uh, 79.80 for the changeup. So, you know, we'll see how that kind of, how the, how the breaking pitches uh, develop for him. I know that uh, he has a curve and a slider. So, you know, maybe if one of them becomes uh, high quality, he can kind of ditch the other. Neither of them stood out to me as, as excellent um, at, at any point yesterday for Boyd, but I certainly was impressed with what I saw from him. Very excited to see more. And uh, I, 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 the early returns on the David Price trade are pretty nice for the Tigers, I'd say. You have, you might call him a performance prospect, which is uh, that he just really carved out the minor leagues. I mean, yep. he just really, um, he didn't really leave any prisoners down there. I mean, uh, one 10 inning stretch in Double A when he first got there, where you know he probably was doing a lot of it on command, and then said, "Okay, I need to work a little bit on my stuff." Um, and uh, from there on, it's really been you know a strikeout per inning. Um, you know, a walk per game, two walks per game tops. You know, he might have some homeritis. He is a fly ball guy, but uh, in Detroit, he's in a lot better park for his for his skills. So Absolutely. I, I'm spending a dollar or two on him in auto new, uh, trying to put him on my uh, dynasty squads. And just, you know, generally, this is the kind of guy you never know what's going to happen. You know, it, it's he has enough stuff. He has, you know, what I think is probably good command. And, um, you know, he's got the right people behind him. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, I was impressed by it, and I'm eager to see more. I want to talk to you about a, a an article that went up on the site today. Uh, the, the the question posed in it uh, is also it, it was on it was on the front page, but it's also apt for the fantasy side. Jeff Sullivan asks, "Is Carlos Correa already baseball's best shortstop?" And you know, the defensive piece that definitely makes that a, a real question isn't as important to us but I also think that in the fantasy landscape it's it's very much a viable question still is he the top shortstop above the likes of Troy Tulowitzki, Johnny Peralta, Brandon Crawford, whomever uh, based on his hitting alone is he going to be a the top shortstop off the board next year and more importantly I've been seeing this thrown around and it seems crazy to me but uh, maybe it's not is he a first round pick next year but let's start with the top shortstop first because if you answer no there then he's probably not a first round pick but is Carlos Correa the top fantasy shortstop right now in your estimation I mean right now the power piece is a little bit out there um you know even for what he did in the minor leagues for his age um you know I know he's in a nice home park now but a 20 year old with a 266 ISO just crushing uh, the ball, twenty-five percent homer to fly ball. One of every yeah. four fly balls is gone. And you have to, and I feel like you just have to really regress that. I mean, it's you know, looking at the projections, rest of season projections all have him around league average power. And if he does that, then Tulowitzki is clearly a better a better bet. And I think uh, I think Tulowitzki is is the the top shortstop still. I, I just I can't see it uh, by put, I can't see putting Correa there just yet i just feel like we've done this one before with with so many other prospects when even within this year you know it's chris bryant the top third baseman in fantasy now (laughs) no he's he's very good but he came back to the pack now it's it you know that question being posed was probably never all that realistic because of how deep short, uh, third base is. The the lack of depth at shortstop certainly helps it be a more legitimate question for Correa. But in the end, I mean, I just don't know that we can get him there yet at age 20 or even 21 next year, uh, based on what we've seen through 50 games so far. That just seems like too big a leap. I understand there's risk health-wise with Tulowitzki as there always is, but. I'm loving him in the new park there with uh, with Toronto. Not that he was in a bad park before, but that lineup. And I like him as a leadoff hitter. I really like Tulowitzki atop the lineup there. So for me, it's still Tulowitzki number one. But uh, you know, Correa is there. So obviously, I I don't think you're you're taking him in the first round. I'm not either. Where are you looking at him right now? If, we, if we're doing a 2016 draft, um, how quickly are you ready to take Carlos Correa? Well, eight stolen bases out of nine attempts. 
Uh, a swinging strike rate that's better than league average. So you'd project him probably for, you know, 18, 19% Ks. You know, in his second year, I think you could even project him for above average walk rate. That that matters because it gets him on base to steal bases. So, you know, you might you might project him for like a 340, 350 on base percentage next year. Uh, even with a step back in power, I think you could easily easily in a, in a second season, uh, once he's kind of gone through some of this, give him a 190, 200 ISO. Uh, so now we're talking about a guy who's going to hit 280, 340, you know, 500, uh, 200, yeah, 450. Uh, 480. It's pretty um, good. That's, that's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, you're probably talking about like baseline projections being 2020. Wow. At shortstop. At shortstop without any, I think without any of the risk that Desmond had. I mean, that's that's what Desmond did when he was uh, the top shortstop uh, was, you know, he stayed healthier than Tulo and he went 2020. Exactly. Three straight like years. In fact. But even when Desmond was doing that, he was doing that with a way higher swinging strike rate, a way mm-hmm. higher strikeout rate, and it was much more of a sort of a toolsy package than uh, whereas uh, Korea's got some refinement there. I mean, to come up and strike out 18.8% of the time in your rookie years, that's just amazing. So it's ridiculous. Uh, I think <clears throat> I think he could. I think it, I I'd just say you know this year, rest of season. I don't know. There, there's gonna there's gonna be some time when they adjust to him and. They've already started to some extent. He gets fewer balls in the zone than the average player, and he gets fewer uh, fastballs than the average player. And that's not usual for a rookie with 200 plate appearances. So um, he's already getting you know some of that treatment. We'll see if uh, you know some of the strikeouts start going up, or if he just um, goes you know goes quiet for a little bit. But um, in any case, next season I think I'd probably give him something like a 280-2020 projection. And if that's not first, it's second. And it's only second because you think Tulo is going to be healthy and he's going to have like 145 RBI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, 180 runs scored. I think he's going to score over one run per game. A top oh, right. Toronto I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just, just shift it. Just put the 145 on the run scored and like 70 ribbies still. But probably 80 for him, uh, even out of leadoff. Um, no, I, I, I hear you on all of that with Correa. So I, I don't think that that's crazy. Um when you're talking about it as a comparison to Desmond, Desmond was somebody I liked and I actually said might be a fringe first rounder this year because he had three years of 2020. And that was with the skills risk that I knew he had. We're taking away some of that risk with Correa, as you mentioned with the strikeout and walk rates. So yeah, I guess, I guess now uh, we're talking about second round. I don't think I could take him as my first pick, but at that point, if you're picking at the back end of the first round, what does it really matter if you go first or second? Uh, they they kind of blend together there. So, wow, it, it's a lot closer than I thought. I do still have Tulo as the number one shortstop, but that's a lot closer than I thought. He's just been so impressive. I can't wait to watch him and those Astros down the stretch here and, and, and see what they're able to do. Speaking of, by the way, Desmond just uh, laced a double off the wall after hitting a home run. So he's trying to impress us. He's trying to get back into our good graces <laughs> as we're podcasting. And I just I don't know if it's going to work, Desmond, because you're still hitting two. 16 even after your two for two today let's talk about the matt carpenter roller coaster it's been really bizarre this year he gets off to a, an eight homer first couple of months uh eight homers through may for matt carpenter you know that's not uh over the top i think nelson cruz had that in the first four games or something this year but um for matt carpenter that was huge because he doesn't hit a ton of home runs so to have eight through two months that was really impressive well then came a major cold snap through all of June and most of July, from, from June 1st to July 22nd, he had one home run. Well, now we're back up on the we're back on the good part of the roller coaster. He's got six homers since July 23rd. So total it all up, he's got 15. It's a career high. Um, you know, he's four away from what he's had in the last two years combined, uh, playing over 1,400 plate appearances. So you know, we're seeing this power surge here. His numbers are back on track, looking good. Where are you at on Matt Carpenter? Uh, do you get hung up in these in these ups and downs, or is that just the ebbs and flows of the baseball season? And and in this era where we can analyze everything, we just overanalyze these streaks. What do you think? Well, uh, you know, talking to the players, they say that adjustments come really fast. I would and, imagine, and that 
maybe we don't even appreciate how how fast they come when we're watching because he says teams know immediately. I was talking to Ryan Braun. That's who it was. I was talking to Ryan Braun, and he had the bad thumb thing last year. Yes. And uh, or maybe 2013, but he was no, dealing it was with last it year. last year. Yeah. And well, both, um, I guess. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah, but last year he had the the highest fastball rate of his career and the highest zone rate of his career. So uh, these are the kind of things that we talk about when we talk, like I just talked about with Carlos Correa. So everybody was challenging Ryan Braun immediately because they knew his thumb hurt, you know, mm-hmm. and they were throwing him inside. And I'm sure that happened in, you know, third week of April or second week of April. So, you know, as much as these things uh, have been deemed by the stat community, a lot of these stats uh, haven't been have not been deemed to be uh, predictive in these small samples. You know, I think it's because people react to these adjustments differently. And so in the larger scheme of things, maybe it's not so meaningful to look at something like pole percentage in one month or ground ball rate in one month. That makes but, sense. But, you know, these are people who are adjusting to other adjustments. And, you know, there are there, these things are happening. So it's the sort of and what happens next that's so hard. So I think, you know, if I look at, for example, Matt Carpenter's pole percentage uh, by month, March, 37%. May, 27%. June, 38%. July, 44%. August, 30%. So, to me, that says that, uh, and his oppo percentage is, you know, doing the opposite thing. It's just going up and down. To me, that says that he's getting pitched differently. You know, he's getting pitched in and out, and they're trying, you know, they're trying different things, and... You know, when I see the pull rate go down and go back up, I, I think, well, he's going oppo because they're pitching him on the outside. And then since he did some damage to them on the, on the outside, they went back inside. And, you know, maybe it took him a second, zero homers for a while, you know. And then he said, well, screw it. If they're going to go inside, I'm just going to pull it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take that ball where it's going. I'm going to be aware of it. I, I now know that they're going to pitch me inside, and so I'm going to – uh, I'm going to be all over it. I think it's good news, actually, to see him have these separate periods of power related to separate periods of, of pulling off a percentage. If you look at, for example, a guy like Brandon Bell, he's had these same things over his career, except that they happen in sort of six-month stretches. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, We've talked a so lot about can, that in the past, too. Yeah, you can see, you can see his brain working. <laughs> Uh, which I think is, I'm saying that in a bad way. Uh, whereas I think Matt Carpenter, it looks like, you know, is, is, is working on this sort of thing, um, uh, on a more daily basis and, uh, and trying to adjust back to the adjustments to him. You know, when you look at him in the aggregate at the end of the year, uh, it's going to be a good power year for a guy at 29, um, you know, who, who learned, uh, maybe something about the league. And uh, it's also part of the reason why it's so hard to, to age power and predict power because, you know, not only are, you, are your physical skills on the decline, but your mental skills, your awareness of the game, your ability to uh, predict and anticipate pitches is going up. Yes. So that's, as you – That's really it. That's just such an interesting balance as you watch players go through it too. Yeah. So you, you'll see some late power. You'll see some late power out, outbursts, and and uh, you know the numbers will just say that that's an anomaly or whatever. And uh, sometimes it's a guy with, like Carpenter who ha- obviously has at least league average power or had in the past, and maybe even a little more. But was doing you know he had 55 doubles. This is not the case of doubles turning into homers. This is no. This is just a guy who had power that was was showing in doubles. It may be semantics, but he was showing in doubles, and now it's showing a little bit more in power in homers, and it's. It's probably because his willingness to pull a little bit more. I mean, if you look at uh, his numbers for the year, you know, career high pull rate, um, you know, oppo rate down a little bit. Um, so, you know, I think Hitting it's just uh, hard, you know, as hard as he ever has. And, you know, he sat all these years before this year for Matt Carpenter, well below the homer to fly ball uh, average, nowhere near 7%, 6%, 5%. And this year he's at 13%, which is just a couple ticks above the 11% league average. So, you know, it's not like he had some spike either where he's in the 20% range that you can, ex- that you should expect it to come way down. I think a lot of this power could hold to where maybe he is a teens guy for, for a couple years now, 
um, even though he's going to, you know, turn 30 next year and you don't, you're not usually projecting, like you said, this kind of power spike. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying with regards to Matt Carpenter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, league high, league, uh, career high, uh, fly ball, right? So it's actually one of those things that you can test, uh, fairly quickly. I mean, next year, because ground ball fly ball rates, uh, get, get used to, uh, you know, get, become stabilized quicker. So, Let's say you've got Matt Carpenter, you're on the fence about keeping him. Let's say you keep him, um, and uh, early next season, uh, you know, he's it, it, maybe it's a batting average league, and early next season he reverts right back to his old ground ball fly ball rates, then it's not that hard to drop him, you know? Sure. Uh, you know, and, it, and there is some value in knowing what you're looking for, you know, and, and knowing, um, you know, where these things came from and, and what, you, what to be worried about with him. You know, it's like with Desmond in a way, um, I'm kicking myself because I should have probably just traded him away uh, the minute he struggled out of the gate because his strikeout rate was super high. And I would always been worried about his strikeout rate. It, it, because, so. Yeah, because we knew he was he was susceptible. I, I totally get what you're saying there. And I, I didn't I didn't sell him either. You know, I held on thinking, well, yeah. this is a guy I've watched do 2020 for three years. I was pretty big on him coming into the year. But, yeah, we knew the risks. He showed those risks to be valid and, and present right away, you're probably right. We should have maybe just moved on quickly to somebody else in April or May who would have been willing to buy. Um, and even if he comes back, maybe at that point you could probably still have gotten a decent return. Um, now, of course, you can't you, – I mean even though he's performing a little bit better of late, you probably can't get anything for Ian Desmond even with shortstop being abysmal. Um, I want to move on to talk about some beef because beef is what's for dinner. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, Beef is the the best new nickname, and I think Baseball Re- – oh, Baseball Reference already has it. Oh, my God. I was going to get on oh, them. Wow. They've already got it. Foreman, <laughs> I don't know why you're not in the Hall of Fame. You need to be. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, I'm, of course, referring to Wellington Castillo. Colette tipped me in, uh, clued me into the nickname Beef. I've just been tweeting out Beef every time he bombs, which seems to be every day. I believe the Cubs and Mariners both want their money back. Uh, they're, they're pretty pissed about this. The Cubs got a 54 WRC plus from him in 47 plate appearances. The Mariners got a minus 11 in uh, 28 plate appearances. He's on his third team, Wellington Castillo. Uh, 151 plate appearances for the Diamondbacks. He's got 11 bombs with a 295, 384, 614 triple slash. He is absolutely destroying the ball. 44% hard contact rate with the Diamondbacks. Uh, just just slugging the ball. It's similar to Correa. One one of every four fly balls is leaving the yard. Actually, a tick above, 26% homer to fly ball ratio. He's mashing. His 16 homers right now for – or excuse me, 13 homers for Wellington Castillo equal what he did all of last year in uh, almost double the, the playing time. So what are we doing with this with – this power burst uh from a from a 28 year old you know journeyman catcher all of his journey was in this year though by the way he was he was a cub uh throughout his major league career until he decided to hit three teams this year what do you think of this wellington castillo surge and uh do you have to have him on your team just because his nickname beef because i feel like you have to (laughs) i I think i read somewhere that he actually uh he was fed uh (laughs) wellington beef recently for the first time so well, now he knows where it's coming from. I hope that he enjoyed it because it would just be a crime if somebody nicknamed Beef didn't like Beef Wellington. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, to some extent, uh, you know, he uh, he's on the best uh, power in the best power situation he's ever been in. So that's true. That's true with the Diamondbacks. That, that stadium's underrated, I think. I don't know if many folks realize, uh, you know, how good it is to hit in Arizona. And then, of course, you get trips to Coors, which always helps. But, uh, no, it's, an, it's, a nice, it's a nice park. It boosts uh, runs and power, generally speaking. So, you know, Wrigley's kind of neutral. And then Seattle, of course, is, is against hitters. And he didn't have any time there to really set his feet. But, uh, you know, didn't we as a, as a baseball community – put him on Arizona uh, back in the spring. If they had just listened to us, uh, yeah. because there, were, there, there was the big catcher log jam in Chicago and they had nothing going on in Arizona, we're like, well, surely they can move Wellington Castillo there. Well, they didn't end up doing it. He had to, he had to go get there by way of Seattle, uh, and so he was moved in the Mark Trumbo deal, which is, is turning out to, to look great for them. 
because they also got Gabby Guerrero in that deal. That's looking like a, a good move that the Diamondbacks did do, which we're, we don't talk a lot about that right now these days that Arizona did did a good move. They've, they've been making a lot of silly moves. This ended up being a great one for them. You know, one thing that I don't know if it's going to hold, but one thing that's been different with him in Arizona has been his swing rate. He has always been a guy who swings at about a league average rate, maybe just a little bit less. And he's also shown little glimpses of having uh, good walk rates and, and good patience. So uh, it is interesting to me that he, he's ever since he's joined Arizona, he's swung at 42% of his pitches, or 41.7, uh, whereas his uh, career number is uh, about 45. Let me see, uh, 45 exactly. So and he was in the 50s with both of the other clubs this year. So he's, he was he was out of his game uh, doing something he hadn't normally done, swinging more, obviously getting poor results, and now he's he's brought it back all the way the other way, and he's having these amazing results for Wellington Castillo. And I think you know we we probably like intangibles a lot. More than uh, maybe Kylie does a little bit, but uh, more than some other parts of this website, we're, mm-hmm. we're willing to at least talk about them. And you know, it has to be worth something to when he was traded to Seattle. It was like we have Zanino. You're just gonna. You're better than you know our backup guy. You're better Sucre. than he's right. You know, so it's like yeah. uh, you know, like oh, thanks guys. <laughs> I really wanted <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, with Arizona, it was, uh, you know, much more like, um, you know, we need this guy. We want you. You are our catcher. Here you go. Boom. You know, like yeah, maybe more than kind of thing. More than even, maybe even more. Yeah, because they're catching. I mean, it was it was bad. You know, even Salty. Uh, they had they had had Jared Saltamaki there for a little while, a veteran. Uh, he he was actually even below his usual numbers of of mediocrity. So they'd even tried out another veteran. It didn't work. So they're like, dude, can you do this? Because if you can, you're gonna be the starter and the hero. I agree with you. That's a great point. You know, I really agree with you. And and in terms of like, I, mean, I guess just. In more brass taxes, you know, it's everyday work. You know, it's not really something he's ever gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they have him for two more years. So, you know, I think that they're going to be happy with just, you know, putting him out there and playing him. And I don't know, I don't know that I'd predict a 250 ISO going forward, but there are plenty of times in the minor leagues where he's had uh, better than 200 ISOs. We have to all admit that he has uh, decent power at 162. And, um, you know, I think that uh, Zips really has the best handle on it with the 184 rest of season. Uh, that's something that would that would go right into next season and, and gives him a lot of credit for what he's done now. Uh, basically, Zips says 250, 320, 440, um, and makes him what would be you, know, you have to you have to kind of downgrade everything for catchers, but um, would make him a 20 homer guy, uh, 20 to 25 homers over the course of a season. Uh, hello, hello, you know value catcher, you know, top seven guy, you know, on the scrap heap. Absolutely. And, and he becomes one of those guys that um, – because even guys that are hyped for, for more reasons – Yasmani Grandal was somebody I absolutely loved coming into this year. Steven Vogt was somebody that a lot of folks loved. I wasn't on that train. I missed that one. Uh, but even when, when the catcher is hyped – he still doesn't cost that much. Grandal and and uh, vote. They still didn't cost that much. So even and I doubt that Castillo would even get to their heights. But even if he comes in with some some preseason buzz, saying, "Hey, this is a good guy you can get if you want to wait on catcher. You don't get them Posey, McCann, Martin, Schwarber types or whatever. Uh, this is somebody you can get." He's going to cost you nothing, and there's a good chance that he can be your second catcher even, which makes him even better. So, yeah, Wellington Castillo is definitely on the radar, and I think somebody that you should keep on the radar beyond this year as well. Let's talk about uh, another guy who's performing pretty well, a uh, one-time prospect who it, it just looked like it wasn't working. 
But now he's doing some decent things this year, and it's Aaron Hicks, 25-year-old outfielder out in Minnesota. They're fading a little bit. Uh, you know, with the, the pitching just wasn't going to be able to hold up. But uh, Hicks has been a bit of a bright spot, especially with with Byron Buxton on the bench, uh, hurt. Uh, uh, so I should I should say on the shelf because he's not not on the bench. But uh, over the last month or so, Hicks is really lacing the ball around. In fact, you know, it just started on July 3rd when he got called back up. 306, 375, 500 triple slash line for him with four homers, uh, three stolen bases, and that's in 112 plate appearances. So, you know, that paces out to 24 homers and uh, 18 stolen bases with a 300 average. I don't think he's going to have a season like that anytime soon, but he's finally showing some skills that have really been elusive uh, in his major league stints before. Coming into the year, Hicks was just a 69, nice, OPS plus. Uh, in 538 plate appearances uh, from 2013 to 2014. So, you know, that, that that's not the end-all, be-all sample to say that he sucks or anything, but it was a substantial enough sample to say, it ain't working right now. We're going to need to see some changes. We're seeing some some improved offense. I don't know if it's if it's on the heels of actual changes or if he's just kind of getting his feet under him as a major leaguer. But what, what's your take on Aaron Hicks, like I said, a one-time top prospect? Yeah. It's funny. I don't. I'd hate to be sound wishy-washy because I just lauded Wellington Castillo uh, for not swinging so much, and I think that the key to Hicks' success has actually been swinging some more. So, and I, they're different players. I mean, if you look at if you look at Aaron Hicks's career, here's a guy who's had ten to fifteen percent walk rates his whole his whole minor league career, and he comes up. And he has, you know, the ability to take a walk at the major league level, but also strikes out way more than he ever did and strikes out way more than his swinging strike rate predicts. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you look at uh, last year in particular, a 7.3% swinging strike rate and a 25% strikeout rate. uh, That's that's, that's way out of whack. That's way out of whack. And. You know, it's nice that he gets the you know 16% walk rate, and I'm sure that's how he sort of defined himself as a player. We don't know if the Twins value that as much as other things, and we certainly know that a 341 on base percentage doesn't work with a .06 ISO um, unless you're, you know, a shortstop, basically. Um, so, you know, I think what happened in, in the end was that at some point he said, well, screw it. I, You know, maybe... He learned uh, from somebody in the organization that they just didn't think he swung enough or, you know, that they valued, his, you know, they wanted him to show some power or, you know, or, or maybe he just said, I've got to try something else. But, I mean, it's pretty drastic if you look at his swing percentage uh, from last year to this year. 37 and, to 45% for Hicks. Yeah, and we're not talking about something that's in a sample of, you know, 100 here or 100 there. We're talking about he saw 950 pitches last year, and he swung at those 950 pitches, uh, what did you say, 37% of the time? Yeah, 37%, 37% of the time. And this year he's seen another, you know, 796 pitches, so almost as many pitches as, as he saw last year, and he's and he's swinging 45% of the time. I think that's a, that's a very large increase. And the nice thing is he still has a good eye because he went from a 20% reach rate to a 23% reach rate both those numbers are way better than league average. So mm-hmm. here's a guy who has a great sense of the strike zone who was being too passive. And That's he was exactly himself, what I was going to say. Is yeah, that- he's getting himself into two strike counts just because, you know, either framing or the umpire or maybe you know, even a guy with a great eye can be wrong and you get yourself into a two strike count and then you just can't get out of it. No, and that, that, that's a great – that's the point I was going to make about passivity was I always thought coming up there was a little bit too much of a passive approach that was helping inflate his walk rates. And, um, you know, you got to maximize it a little bit more. And now he's finding that happy medium where he is still patient but aggressive. And, and, the, and the two things can work together. And you mentioned saying, you know, we just got, talk, we just got done talking about Castillo for swinging less and, and Hicks for swinging more. That's because it goes from player to player. It, it all depends yeah. on your skills and what your skills can offer if you're, if you're swinging more or swinging less. And, and that's why there is no one universal thing that says, hey, you got to be at this swing percentage to be successful. No, it's what you're skills can determine so we had each end of the spectrum there and uh, i think there's a little bit of uh, of validity to to hicks's little surge here and as somebody with a little bit of pop and some and some good speed 
I, I like what he can do here. I, I would definitely consider him in an uh, in an outfield uh, five outfield league. Excuse me, where I, I need some depth there. I know that some leagues play only three outfielders. All of mine are five, but uh, you know, I'd say upwards 14, 15 team mixed league. Obviously, AL only for sure. But I think he's still going to play for a while. It doesn't seem, at least the last news I heard on Bucks, and he's not coming back anytime soon. And I don't know who else they have to play. So I think they're going to give Hicks a shot. How's his defense? I I recall it being good before, but those things change so quickly that uh, he might he might be on the other end of the spectrum. What what do you know about his his uh, his defense, Aaron Hicks? It's it's decent. Uh, okay. You know he may end up uh, heading to the corner, but if he shows himself as an asset with the glove, there's 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 space for him on that team. Absolutely. And he's a switch hitter, so he's not necessarily um, you know going to fall into a platoon role. And I mean he's like a scratch golfer, so. Uh, you yes. know, yeah, so he's just like an athlete, you know, yes. he's like one of these guys. Um, and, and I, and I get the sense that he's pretty smart. So I think this is the kind of guy to bet on. Uh, honestly, I think it's a, it's a, it's a decent guy to bet on. <clears throat> the, the projections are all going to, uh, you know, Oh, they're going to hate him because we're talking about the 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 uh, 500 and whatever five 538 plate appearances before that were so rotten. I get that. I totally get that. Yeah. But uh, th- there there are changes here that can make you feel a lot more confident, even though we don't have an equal 538 plate appearances of the high quality work. And you know, I don't want to overstate it when I say high quality. High quality compared to what he's been doing. He has a 740 OPS right now for the season. So it's not like he's he's blowing things out of the water. It's just this last month he's really taken off. And I agree with you, Hicks is somebody I'd be willing to bet on. I think you might actually be talking me into maybe looking at him even in a 12-team league where I've got a couple uh, of deep reserve rosters there. Uh, well, look at look at look at so steamers the rosiest in terms of strikeout rate with the 20% strikeout rate uh 10% walk rate basically so uh those those seem very attainable for him i mean the 10% walk rate would have been low uh, low projection at one point um if you're looking back at his career so uh now we're believing that the swinging is going to keep him out of too many strikeouts he's got the great swinging strike rate um you know with that lineup they've got him 244 318 um but they also given him a 296 BABIP, and he's got a 316 now. He's also done some some swing plane changes where he's um, he used to be way ground ball-y, and now he's a little bit more one to one ish. So um, you know, 316 doesn't seem crazy to me. So um, you know, give him a. I mean, why? I don't know why I have to stretch so hard to give him a 250. But I, I guess 250, 260 batting average, 320, 325 on base. Um, and the kind of skills they give you, kind of 10-10 uh, or 15-15, you know, like uh, he's kind of Adam Eaton-esque, you know, in a slightly different way. But Yeah, uh, yeah you're talking about a, a speedy guy, center fielder, can be at the top of the lineup, knows how to take walks, has a little bit of pop, has the speed, sometimes gets a little uh, ugly on the bases with his decision-making, which leaves yeah. him with, uh, with, with a high caught rate as well. And you worry sometimes that that could take it from a from a green light to a, to a red light. But uh, I think that they're going to let him run, try to figure it out, kind of learn how to be a base stealer as opposed to somebody who they say, no, nah, no, nah, we'll pull the brakes on you because you're not doing it right. I, I, I like Hicks here. Um, and, you know, the batting average that we're talking about, you're saying you're stretching to get him to a 255. You know, he had a 247 before he was demoted when he wasn't hitting very well. And so, you know, that's that's still kind of passable. So I think I can even get to a 265 um, as not even the high end. I think this two, you know, he's got a 277 for the season now. We could see some good things. Hicks is somebody to keep an eye on. And they're, they're going to be in a good position if Hicks and, and Buxton both start panning out to what they're supposed to be. Let's move over to some pitchers and talk about some uh, lower level guys who are were recently traded as well. And um, Chris Bassett and Aaron Brooks are the two guys I want to talk about. Two guys both have gone to Oakland in in recent trades. Bassett was an offseason trade, the Jeff Samarja trade. Aaron Brooks was a very recent trade. He was the Ben Zobers deal. Both guys are getting some run. They're in the rotation now. Bassett has been for a little bit. Obviously, Brooks just got to the club. Let's start with Bassett, who's who's really on a roll of late. Uh, if you look at since he joined the rotation, he's got six starts dating back to June 30th. He's got a 243 ERA in 37 innings with a 1.01 whip. Um, you know, he's a, he's a walk. Don't give up any walks. 
command and control kind of guy. Only 26 strikeouts in that same run there. But where are you on Chris Bassett for the Oakland A's right now? I mean, this article that I'm going to write about Luis Severino, I I got I bet you Chris Bassett's name is going to come up. I don't know. The, the velocity piece for him is pretty intriguing. I like how you and, said you don't know as if you're not in full control of that. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I know I'm teasing you. Say. I mean, if, if the numbers don't say anything, then he's no use to me. But, um, <clears throat> you know, he came up last year uh, with a 91.8 in relief. Uh, he averaged 91.8 in relief uh, mostly. Well, I, I guess he started. Uh, he started. Okay, he started for the White Sox. I thought it was in relief. But in any case, he, is, he had 91.8. And then he comes up this year, and I don't think that looking at his average, the 92.8, is just gives him enough credit because he's hitting 94 and 95 when he needs it. And it's, uh, it's been very useful for him in terms of uh, getting, getting important outs. Now, you know, if, if I, if I zoom away and, 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 and stop watching with my eyes and start looking at the stats, it, it looks a lot less impressive. And to be fair, this is, you know, the, the stuff that's projected for him is what he was, project that's why the the athletics got him you know like sure yeah uh, he, was a him because he doesn't really have a plus secondary pitch um none of his uh he, his strikeout rates haven't been that impressive um his ground ball rates haven't been that impressive so you know it there there are a lot of reasons to doubt him uh but i will say that at 92.8 and you know 93 miles an hour you know at at home i like him as a kind of DFS and and uh, streaming kind of play, I like him. I think a little bit better than I should, considering he has a bad swing strike rate, a bad strikeout rate, and super lucky on on batted balls right now. He uh, Bassett had seven strikeouts in that in the most most recent outing, seven shutout innings against Baltimore. And I used him for DFS that night because he was just so cheap. Um, I didn't know that the strikeouts those were those were a bonus. I didn't think that those were going to come. But you know, Brooks has them at 94.6 on the fastball on the four seamer, excuse me, and the 93.6 on the sinker since joining the rotation on June on uh, June 30th too. So you know, you're talking about that velocity. It, it is ticking upward. If he can get one of these four uh, secondary pitches, he, they got him throwing a slider, curve, change, and cutter. If one of those four can become something more of an out pitch, I think there could be a little bit more here because, yeah, that 18% strikeout rate makes it tough to get too giddy uh, with him. You know, 264 ERA and 109 whip both seem primed to rise some, but but I don't think overly. I, I don't think that he's going to be awful and, and be in the you know the the mid fours or anything like that. If you're looking at somebody who's a three seventy five ERA uh, for his composite, I could imagine a scenario where the makeup of that includes a lot of good home starts and maybe most of the bad work coming on the road. So yeah, as a streamer type or DFS low dollar SP two option, I like him. Let's t- what about Aaron Brooks well, though? Just real quick, just real quick. I mean, if you're looking at projections that do give him in the mid four stuff, I think one thing they are missing is the command part. I had uh, my friend Guy Haberman, who does a, a radio show out here for um, uh, 95.7 The Game. I, I, I asked, I made, I made him ask Chris Bassett. Maybe he was going to anyway. I don't know, but uh, I made him ask Chris Bassett what, what about the velocity increase, and he said that Bassett said that they just cleaned up a little bit of his mechanics and that he's been in rhythm. You know, he's had the some of the better command numbers of his career recently. Mm-hmm. And I know that they're looking back to that White Sox debut with the 394 walk rate and some of his uh, bad numbers in the low minors with the, with the White Sox and just generally ha- hasn't impressed with the, the walk rate. But, you know, this is the kind of guy that could figure out some command stuff at, uh, at his age, at 26. And uh, command is related to confidence. So, you know, it's a lot, you're going to have a lot more confidence in Oakland than you are going to be in, in the cell. Um, so I, I don't know that I believe, I really don't like steamers, uh, four, eight, eight rest of season. No, that's, uh, that seems right. too high. Yeah. And the, I think that steamers, uh, three and a half per nine is, um, much more reasonable. And then you have to, um, uh, you know, 
user park factor eyes to, to look at that ERA and whip because you're probably not going to use them on the road that much. No. And that, that, yeah, that's the thing too. If you're looking at composite ERAs for his projections, you're going to be really turned off. But again, the makeup could be where he's really good at home and maybe struggles a little bit more on the road. So Chris Bassett's somebody that you keep on your radar as a stream, uh, stream kind of deep league option. What about Aaron Brooks? I think he was, you know, something of a prospect, never a top 100 guy and, and not all that great on the KC lists because they were deep, but more of a back end on the, on those type of lists. He was, uh, the secondary piece in that Ben Zobris deal along with Sean Manaya. He, he made his debut for Oakland a, a couple days ago. Actually, let me see the first August 1st, seven and a third, five hits, one run, zero walks, five strikeouts, and just, a, a, and one home run against Cleveland. What are you thinking about Aaron Brooks right now? I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm trying to figure out why I shouldn't like him. Um, Cause it's easy to kind of fall in love with, with guys. And for one, he has a great changeup. And I think I, I have mentioned that, it's possible that he won't have great strikeout rates even with a great changeup because of the sort of Jared Parker theory that I, that I mentioned. Yes, you did mention uh, that when we were talking about the trade. I think it's because uh, the changeup is often used for grounders. Uh, the changeup also uh, requires the fastball, I think, a little bit more than, say, a great breaking ball might. Um, you play the changeup off of your fastball, so... If they decide not to swing at one of those two things, then you're kind of screwed. Whereas um, if you can place a breaking ball in the zone and it has great mo- great action on it, then I think that'll get you whiffs no matter what. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I think it's a complicated theory. It's going to be very hard to, to tease out. It's something that I've, I've looked at. I do know this. I can say this for, for certain. Your change-up swing strike rate is, re- is less closely correlated to your overall swinging strike rate than any other secondary pitch. Interesting. In fact, so, than any other ahead. pitch. In fact, it's less than any other pitch, even less than curveballs. So if you have a great change-up swinging strike rate, it doesn't mean anything uh, else. It doesn't. Well, it does mean you're going to have you're going to get whiffs on those pitches for sure. Yeah, for yeah. One, but, but it doesn't mean that uh, your other pitches will necessarily follow any sort of suit. Right, or that your overall swing strike rate would be great, or your strikeout rate would be great. So, um, uh, in fact, actually, I, I said that wrong. I, you correlate it to the overall strikeout rate, not swing strike rate. Because okay. If you if you correlate it to itself, that'd be silly. Uh, you correlate it to if you correlate individual swing strike rates on your different pitches to overall strikeout rate. The 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 weak one of the weakest, I think, the weakest relationship is between your changeup swing strike rate. And your um, overall swing strike rate. So he has a he's gotten whiffs on 30% of the changeups he's thrown, mm-hmm. and it has two inches extra drop and an ex, extra inch of fade and a ten a ten mile an hour gap. I mean it's it's a great changeup, and that's why they traded for him. I'm sure they said here's a guy with average velocity. The fastball's a little bit straight, but he's got average velocity. He's got a great change, and you know. We'll mess around, slider, cutter, curve. We'll we'll get him a good breaking ball. And for what it's worth, the the slider so far has had average whiffs, and it's just the four seam that has. Uh, That's the thing. It's so bad. It's pretty bad. Two percent swinging strike rate on on his fastball. I mean, you know, fastballs. I think people might be surprised to learn if you if you don't dig too deep into this stuff, don't have the swing and strike rates that people might think. You're like, give him the heat, man. Have him swing through it. Um, it, It's not as high as you would necessarily think, but 2% is still abysmal no matter how you want to slice it. 5% for his career, 4.8. Okay. A little bit closer to to usable. But, I mean, it's – I think what we have here is a bad fastball guy, and that's Mm -hmm. why he was available – uh, that's as a, why as a second piece too, by the way. Yeah, and that's why he's been more decent in the in the minor leagues. But you know, where else are you going to hide a bad fastball guy than uh, than Oakland, where Absolutely. the run rates don't matter as much, and and um, they're going to keep it nice and cold. And uh, and uh, I think here's another guy. In fact, between him and Bassett, I'm a really a swinging strike rate guy. I love swinging strike rates. And it comes with good command in this case. If I had to choose between Aaron Brooks and Chris Bassett on a team, I'd take Aaron Brooks. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, th th those two are options. It's it's deeper league options, folks, when you're looking at either of them. But I think you yeah. can manipulate it and play them as as DFS plays or uh, home only streamer types and get some decent results down the stretch. And we'll see if either of them uh, continue to uh, either or both continue to evolve and kind of add to their game right now. But there's still something there, even though. Um, you know, it, it's not the complete package just yet. All right, you know, I want to wrap up talking about the the Indians pitchers, and you can kind of get into uh, somebody that one of the guys that you wrote about, Mr. Uh, Corey Kluber, of course. What is it with Kluber, Carrasco, and Salazar, and and their stark inability to to have any measure of consistency? Why do these three guys who can look like, first off, one of them is the reigning Cy Young, but the other two look like they could be right there with him. Carrasco and Salazar look like potential Cy Young candidates on any given night. But then why do all three seem to go to the other guardrail when it's bad and end up giving five earned runs up with, with shocking regularity, again, relative to their talent? Um, I know Carrasco has at least five such starts. Kluber's most recent start was one of them. He's got a couple of others. Salazar's been blasted several times. Is it just happenstance that these three guys happen to have that on their team? Or is there something going on with Cleveland in particular uh, that you think is leaving these guys susceptible to the, to the lowest of the lows? I think, with, I think it's, it's hard to group the three guys together because – they're different, very different pitchers. Definitely. And but I would, I think I can group Salazar and Carrasco because okay. I don't think either has great natural command. And I know you might look at Carlos Carrasco's walk rate and say, you know, no, that guy has great command. Uh, the, it's good the, control, I think. Yeah, I think he just decided he got enough confidence and he just decided one year that he was going to throw it towards the middle of the zone and, and, and let the movement go. I mean, I just talked to Kendall Graveman about this exact thing. Kendall Graveman has crazy amounts of, of bendiness on his pitches and movement on his pitches. And he was just talking to me about having more confidence. The command was more having more confidence to, you know, often throw towards a, a place that looks bad and have it move away from that place. Cause that's how you get batters to swing and then miss. So, I think that uh, Carrasco's big turnaround was he got the velocity boost, boost. He had a smaller repertoire in the in the bullpen. He started throwing that smaller repertoire towards the middle and saying, "Hey, you know, I don't think you can hit my 97." And uh, then he took that mentality to the starting rotation and and added back in the other pitches and 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 had success. Salzar has added a curveball um, and has. A couple different looks he can throw at you. The curveball's good because it doesn't hang as much as a slider, I think. Sometimes he hangs that slider. And uh, in general, both of those guys are similar in that they pitch high in the zone, they pitch for whiffs, they pitch in a nice hitter's park, in a nice pitcher's park normally. And so they're willing to throw up in the zone and miss every once in a while and uh, have it not turn into a homer maybe as much as it would in other parks. So uh, I think those are pretty similar pitchers. And I think that kind of pitcher can can run into a buzzsaw every once in a while, either with a team that just doesn't swing as much or in a park like the cell, you know, it's not going to line up perfectly, but in terms of reliability, if you put them on a scale, I would, you know, I would put Kluber and, uh, you know, Kluber on one end on the more reliable scale sure. and, uh, and the other two on the other side. Now, why is Kluber being a little bit erratic this year? I don't know. I mean, he, he does throw that breaking ball a lot and he told me, you know, some of the stuff that he told me that didn't end up in the piece was that, you know, sometimes he casts the, the breaking ball and it's more of a 12 to 6 curve ball that he, that, you know, has a bigger shape that he doesn't want. Um, you know, you, you know, he told me a little bit about commanding that pitch and how he has to look, you know, beyond the zone. He has to look outside the zone and, uh, and hope that, you know, he has to look where the movement's going to start. And, and throw it there and then hope that the movement is the same as it always is to get wow. to the outside part of the play. So it's so you, it's such a devastating pitch. It really is. But if you if you if it isn't if you're say you're casting it that day and you're mm -hmm. looking at a certain space and then it breaks differently, then either it turns into a walk or a homer or something. So um, and we already know that Kluber is a little bit of a bad fastball guy. I mean, even the sinker that he switched to, his four seam was so bad he ditched it. Oh yeah. It was uh, terrible yeah and that was one of the reasons why he couldn't make it and so 
now he, he is making it, and it's and it's, but it's uh, it's like an average sinker if you want to be kind to it, really. Uh, so he's not really a great fastball guy. So if you could put Kluber's command with Carrasco's stuff, you'd have a every year ace. You know, you'd have a guy who bona fide very- top fiver who we we talk about. You know, in in the breath of of the Kershaw, Granky, Felix, yeah. Sale type of it would it would be that. Uh, Kluberasco guy, whoever that would be. Yeah, right. So I think in this case, we're just there are different reasons uh, for each of them. But uh, you know, if you wanted me to bet on somebody um, in that group for the season, it's I mean, it's obviously Kluber. Yeah, still Kluber for me. That's why I list them as Kluber, Carrasco, Salazar. That's the order I rank them. Um, and I agree with you that it is Kluber level down, level down, Carrasco in terms of confidence, not in terms of overall, but just in terms of confidence that I would be willing to buy. It's still Kluber at the hot, at the top level down to Carrasco uh, and then probably another level down to Salazar. Well, you know, that's going to wrap us up. We're going to head into the weekend. Um, and I encourage everybody to go find the Zach Greinke bat flip on his home run. This is a guy who <laughs> was getting drilled during the game. He was not having a great game. But uh, he decided he went yard and had an epic bat flip. It was really great. Uh, they still pulled the W because they ended up scoring quite a bit. So even on his bad day, Zach Greinke found a way to be very useful, even when he was giving up six runs in six innings. He goes three for three with a bomb and three runs scored in an epic bat flip. So that's what that's your weekend homework, folks, is to seek that out and find it either on baseball tonight or quick pitch or where, however you get your highlights, even if you just go to the webpage uh, on MLB.com. But, you know, I hope you have a great weekend, and we will talk again on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.